0: This is Michael Easley in Context. Here's a peek at what Michael will be talking about today. I did not walk worthy that day. I did not know how to walk worthy that day. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Have you ever been in a situation where you were assigned a task and maybe you really blew it? (laughs) You You were given a job, given a chance to lead, and you really messed up. I will never forget the story you're going to hear today about walking worthy. It was an experience that marked me for life of being put in a situation where I had a chance to lead and I led very poorly. Psalm 101 is a great text, not only for what a leader does, but who a leader is, his character and how he forms it and how he protects it. Let's take a look at Psalm 101 and hear from David's heart how he wants to lead. I had only been in the Northern Virginia Washington DC area about a year and the first friend I had made died. He died to a very bizarre disease. His wife had died in a white rafting accident a couple of years before I had met him. And he was barely 53 and he died of this strange onset of what was called Crutchfeldt-Jacobs disease. For 20 years he'd been an army pilot. He was an extraordinary athlete, was a great friend, had one of the best laughs of any person I've ever known. His laugh would make anyone smile. And he was a talented guy, he loved people, and he was a wicked guy on the racquetball court. (laughs) We played racquetball two or three times a week and he became a confidant and a friend and I loved Jim Dooley. So I served Jim Dooley's funeral. And it was at the Arlington National Cemetery. Now, I had done lots of funerals before, and I'd buried friends, and I'd buried people I loved. But I'd never done a funeral at the Arlington Cemetery at the Meyer Chapel. Any of you been at the Arlington Cemetery? There's a little Meyer Chapel off to the side. It's controlled by the military. You have 24 minutes to do a service. And they have guns on their sides. <laughs> they look mean. And they say, you have 24 minutes, preacher. Preacher. And this was a fairly uh, dignified service. It was run with precise military protocol. And it was my first experience in this world in this way. Now, my father taught me to shine my shoes as a boy. The first job I ever had was a shoe shine boy at a barber shop about three blocks away. I still shine my shoes. It's a thing I have. It's probably guilt, but it's a thing I have, and I do it. So I have shined shoes, and I have a nice suit on. And I preach this little fine 24-minute, 22-minute thing. And the chaplain comes out and says to me, would you like to ride in the car or walk with the caisson? Now, I didn't know what a caisson was or were. But it was a beautiful day. It was about 58 degrees. The sun was shining. It was in December. And there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And I said, I'll walk. Now, even though I had shiny shoes and a suit on, the only top coat I had was my uncle's. And it looked like Columbo wrinkled, gray, oversized thing with a swaggering belt on it. And um, so this chaplain says, come with me. I have this giant, Ryrie-sized study Bible, three times the size of this, and this big, like, day timer planner thing, and this giant coat. And we start walking down the way. Little did I know this is going to be about a 15-minute walk up and down the hills of, of the Arlington Cemetery. He, of course, was in his perfectly starched wools and hat and he was marching, and I was walking. And as we came around the corner behind us, I noticed the color guard behind us that is marching in perfect array. Behind the color guard is the horse-drawn caisson, which is polished and gleaming black, not a smudge, not a, not a mark on this thing. And behind it is an entire group marching in precision military cadence. And here's Columbo walking in front of them. <laughs> We get to the funeral site, we have the graveside, it's the end of the thing. I felt like a hippie, and um, that was the end of it. About a year later, a friend of mine who was a chaplain in the Pentagon said, Michael, I want to introduce you to the new chief of chaplains. He's a two-star chaplain. His his name is uh, Admiral Gunhus. He is the highest-ranking chaplain in military history. I've never had a two-star before as a chaplain. And he's over all chaplains of all military operations. I want you to meet him because he goes to your church. (laughs) Okay, let's go meet him. So we go up to the Pentagon and we do the Pentagon tour, which is a remarkable tour for a couple of hours. And then he says, let's go see the chief of chaplain. We go into the chief of chaplain's office and it's like much of military protocol. You go through chambers and doors and secretaries and assistants and you finally get into the Holy of Holies. And I'm standing there and uh, Chaplain Gunhus comes out He shakes my hand, and he looks at my friend, Chaplain Tatum, and he says to him, When are you going to teach this boy to march? (laughs) It was a year earlier that he had been the duty chaplain at the Fort Myer Chapel who had asked me, Do you want to walk or ride in the the car? And I said to him, Next time, I'll ride. (laughs) I did not walk worthy that day. I did not know how to walk worthy that day, wasn't in my element. I'd never gone to boot camp, never been a NCO, never been through officer's training, never had some drill sergeant barking at me, didn't know how to do it. I was inappropriate that day, didn't walk to honor the military. My friend had a case on, you and I serve a king. We serve the king and we're to walk worthy. We're to walk in a manner of our calling, Paul tells us. Psalm 101 is the last psalm I'd like to look with you at for a few minutes today. It is another royal motif song. This psalm is probably an inaugural psalm. I suspect David wrote it on the occasion of his own inauguration, which seems a little strange, but then if we know the character of David, we know that he was a wonderful musician. He was a man's man, That he killed a lion and a bear. Not an easy accomplishment in any day. He killed a giant. He was a mighty warrior, and he was the king. So he's an unusual combination of the military grit, of the strength of a man in the field dealing with animals, and yet knowing how to lead God's people. And he happened to be an extraordinary musician and writer as well. So in some ways, it makes sense that he would write his own inaugural tune. If you read the book Neil Postman wrote back in the mid-80s called Amusing Ourselves to Death, he writes, I believe I am not mistaken when I say that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Uh, We serve a universal, the universal king, the sovereign God, and his son Jesus Christ through his spirit. And we need, I believe, a different look at what it means to follow Christ. Uh, This, of course, another one of the Hebrew hymn books. David, not unlike Psalm 110, has this double message. He's talking about himself, but he's also talking about Messiah, the ultimate king. Now, the king of Israel had to do two things. He had to be subject to the laws of God, and he had to be an example of the law of God. He had to be submissive to God's law, so he had to comply with it, to follow it, to obey it. But he also had to be an example of the law to the people who were going to be in his kingdom. And that is in in germ form what this psalm teaches. I am subject to the law of God, but I must be an example of the law of God to all the people around me in my cabinet. Again, Derek Kidner, it should hardly need saying... That the resolve here is to have no truck with evil men does not spring from pride, but from the king's concern for a clean administration, honest from the top down. You know, Cindy and I are somewhat political junkies. We love politics. We love to watch all the debates and all the pundits, and we have our own running commentary as we're watching these people. (laughs) I want a clean administration from the top down. I don't care if you're a mayor, a councilman, an alderman, a president. I want a clean administration from the top down. Doesn't everybody? If Richard Milhouse Nixon would have said, yes, I had a hand in the Watergate affair that had slapped him on the wrist, he'd have been a heroic president and built his library and we'd all love him. The same is true with every president. They make mistakes. We'll give them lots of grace, won't we? We'll give them lots of slack, but if it's not clean... The nose knows. This psalm folds into, unfolds into three very simple points. Number one, a commitment to serve the king, verse one. Psalm 101, beginning at verse one I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. The two vertical aspects that we've talked about, loving kindness and now the word justice. Loving kindness is, of course, that covenantal love. God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promises. It is his chesed character. It is who he is. It is the ethical love of God that when he says something, you can count on it. His character, his promises are good. His word is good. That's who he is. That's who we pin our hopes on. Here the psalmist says, I'm going to sing of this loving kindness. And think of the songs we hymn, contemporary verses, traditional verses, classical music, whatever your particular preference may be. Does the lyric worship Yahweh, Jesus Christ, well? Is there a vertical nature to the worship? One of the great litmus tests of the songs we sing. Are we singing about him or are we singing about us? You can do both, but I hope we sing a little more often about him Doxology, the glorification of God, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We're praising God, not talking about our miserable estate, which I like to do too. But worship sings of loving kindness and justice. Justice is the ruler's prime duty. We expect a king to execute justice. Now, the Hebrew concept of justice is a little different than perhaps our American view of justice. The American view of justice is, if something goes wrong, fix it. Do the right thing. But the Hebrew concept of justice was a two-edged sword. You corrected those who did wrong, but you rewarded those who did well. It's not just the one side. Some of these communities, they, they try these experiments. Instead of giving traffic tickets, they give $10 gift certificates to people who come to a complete stop. You've heard about these communities, and the motorcycle cop comes up and you go, oh no, what did I do? Have you ever had that light and siren in your rear window and been happy? (laughs) There's not many things in life that get me going, like the sound of a police car and red lights in my rearview mirror or an ambulance. What did I do? Am I holding the wheel right? Do I have my seatbelt on? Am I driving the speed limit? Did I come to a complete stop at the stop sign? And so justice from the American feel is what I do wrong. But the Hebrew concept of justice is that's just half of it. You reward those who do well. So look at the beginning of the psalm. The king is saying, I will, two declarative statements, I will sing of God's Hesed, of his loving kindness, and I will sing of his justice. The king's resolve as he begins his inaugural address is, I'm going to talk about the Hesed of God, that he is a loving, kind God. And I, as the king, will sing of justice. I will do right, and I will reward those who do right. That's my job as a king. That would be a pretty good mantra for any presidential candidate. I will do the right thing the right way. I will correct those who don't, and I will reward those who do. That's the chief concern of the king, a commitment to serve a greater king. We might call them the vertical and horizontal commitments, loving kindness and justice. Uh, Spurgeon called them the bitters and the sweets. When I read this part of the psalm, one of the questions my runs to is, um, do I recount God's loving kindness and justice in my own life? We sing the little hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. It's an old ditty of a hymn, but it's pretty good theology. When's the last time you took pen to paper and you counted the blessings that God has put in your life? It's a humbling thing to do. Is a glass half empty or half full? It's always half empty for me. I'm the pessimist. It's always what I'm or. It's only my birthday. Nobody cares about me. All I got is this dumb balloon. You know, and I like being depressed. I mean, it's. (laughs) Snap out of it, Cindy would tell me. I did marry the perfect woman, and you should hear her talk sometime. Um, But I have to count my blessings. I have to write them down sometime. God saved me from a licentious, drug-filled life. God gave me great Christian friends when I was in high school and college. God gave me three great Christian roommates in college that helped me tremendously. God put me in a little tiny Bible church in, in Nacogdoches, Texas, Grace Bible Church, taught by a man named John Aldridge. You might know the name Joe Aldridge. John was his big brother, and he was a Dallas Seminary graduate. I got to sit under some of the finest Bible teachers in the world. I got to sit under Howard Hendricks for four years and went back for two more. Um, I go down all the blessings. Bob Tolson, who taught the Bible so faithfully, I listened to cassettes from some guy named John MacArthur and some guy named Chuck Swindler. Uh, (laughs) Back before they were even on radio, I heard tapes from this guy called The Shepherd's Voice out of Fullerton, California. I got two cassettes every week in the mail. And listened to these tapes. Listen to some guy named Pentecost and Stanley to saint and who knew who these people were and and I learned the Bible and I learned doctrine and I learned to study the scripture and then I got to go to seminary and then I married a wife along the way who loves me more than anyone should on I could go how about you have you counted your blessings have you chosen to sing of God's loving kindness and justice and if I fixate on the problems and pains that I have I've become a depraved Eeyore. If I take the choice, it's a declarative decision. I will sing of loving kindness and justice. I will. And you'll see the declaratives as the psalm unfolds. When was the last time you went through that exercise? I am far better off than I ever deserve. And probably you are too. Number one, a commitment to serve the king. Number two, a commitment to clean character, verses two through five. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart will depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Number one, a commitment to serve the king. Number two, a commitment to clean character. Now you notice the declarative I wills again. And the first one in this strophe is the choice of integrity. Integrity is a little word in Hebrew, tamim, and it simply means blamelessness. A person of integrity is a person you can't pin any blame on. We might say they're squeaky clean. When, uh, early on with my first daughter, I would, uh, you, ever, you ever do the thing where you take glasses and make them sing? And I would do this with my, my first two daughters. And um, we would get the hot, soapy water and clean them, and I, and you put different amounts of water, make them sing. And then I would intentionally let them with their unsqueaky clean hands try to make them sing. And they couldn't do it. I said, you have to wash your hands in really warm soapy water to get all the oil off your finger or it will never sing. You have to be squeaky clean. Nothing can be on the rim that, show, that prevents it from making that sound. And that's a sense of the word integrity blamelessness. And his choice is, I will give heed to the way of integrity. I will submit myself to it. Leo de Rocher said, I've never questioned the integrity of an umpire. His eyesight, yes. (laughs) The demonstration of integrity is, okay, I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to give heed to the blameless way. How are you going to prove it, King? David, how are you going to show us the blameless way? Look at the rest of the verse. There's an interlocution here. We have to talk about, when will you come to me? But then look at the next strophe. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless things before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. Let's unpack these a little bit at a time. It's one thing to look like a person of integrity. It's another person, another thing to live like a person of integrity. A friend of mine said he can never pastor. I can never be a pastor of a church. So why? He says, well, you counsel these guys who are the worst husbands and fathers in the world, and on Sunday morning, they put on a suit and tie, and they sit in the pew, and they smile at you. So I could never be a pastor. And I said, oh, it's easy. Just take them behind a woodshed and work on them for a while. <laughs> he couldn't handle the disconnect from what a person says versus what a person does. That's a lack of integrity. If what we say we do, we do it when no one is around, and see if we do it. You are a man or woman of integrity, when you do what you do alone. That's when you know if you have integrity. What you do when no one is looking. I would take it a step further. It's what you think about in the privacy of your mind. No one can dial into our thought lives except the Holy Spirit. And what we think about when our wife is saying something. What we think about when our husband is not saying something. What we think about when a young woman walks by. What we think about when a A strapping, fine specimen of a man walks by. What we think about when we look at someone with contempt, how we judge or are critical of other people, I believe that's where integrity begins. Now, where was David's demise physically? On the roof of his house. He saw a woman bathing. Well, what's he doing on the roof looking at a woman bathing? And what's she doing not bathing in such a fashion that he can't see her? There's no integrity and the text gives us no indication but I suspect it wasn't the first time it's in his house when he wrote these words little did he know he's making a choice before God before people and I think he meant every word of it I will walk within my house and the integrity of my heart he knew he had to do it but he's human and he's culpable just as are we it's a very powerful warning to those who would be leaders you lead a family, you lead an organization, you lead a ministry, you lead a company, you lead a practice, you lead a classroom. Anything that you lead, when a leader falls, he or she falls far. It affects a lot of little people. One of the churches that Cindy and I served, the prior pastor had gotten in trouble. He'd left and moved in with his secretary and later divorced his wife and married his secretary. And to follow that was an interesting experience. I met people for years afterwards that would say to me, I used to go to that church before so-and-so fell. I used to go to that church before so-and-so fell. I heard that again and again and again. And I thought, in God's sovereign plan, he's going to work through those experiences. But I thought, when that man made a choice to do those sins, did he have any indication of what it would do to the average person in the pew who just came to church on Sunday to listen to his or her pastor talk about God? The imperceptibility of leadership is something we never talk about. Just because you are who you are, where you are consistently, has an impact. Just because Cindy and I have stayed married faithfully for 28 years and counting makes an impact it is imperceptible. There's somebody somewhere that says, I'd like to kill my husband today, but because Michael and Cindy love each other, I will not. And you'll never hear that story, but it's true. And it's true about you, too because you have stayed faithful, even when others have not. It's imperceptible. David's choice was to have a clean integrity. Now, the little interlocution, when will you come to me? It makes Bible scholars far smarter than me scratch their heads. And I think it's just this interlocution that he's saying, I'm doing this, God. I'm trying to live faithfully. Where are you? Where are you? I think it's an incredibly intimate insight into the king. David who's saying I'm really trying to do my best in our terms Jesus but I don't feel you I don't see you I don't know where you are you're not a real tangible God I can't I can't hug you I can't feel you I can't worship some I can't burn something in front of an idol that looks like you we've got this temple complex with an altar and that's it how do I know where you are and the intangibility of his sovereign was no different than ours and I think it's a personal glimpse into the heart of David. David was a man after God's own heart. He's a complex character. We probably know more about David's emotions than any other character in the Bible. As he wrote the Psalms, as a king, as a musician, as a warrior, and we would call a songwriter. So we know a lot about his personality and character. It fascinates me that the king is telling himself and others We have to make a choice, a personal choice, to worship God. No matter how we feel, no matter what our experience in life may tell us, a follower of Christ chooses to serve a king. He chooses to worship him. And David gives us the keys to what it means to be a good leader. This is Michael Easley in Context. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context. If you have questions or comments, Please let us know at michaelincontext.com.